Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin. We both have allergies, so if we have to pause for sneezes or coughs or any other intestinal infortitude, uh, please give us some grace, but we would appreciate your prayers in that regard, as well as your participation for the next hour in answering your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to clarify spelling, feel free to join us on our website, Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be able to see not only the email address spelled at the bottom of the screen, but you can engage with us live there through our not only comment section on the right hand of the screen, but also to send in your questions as they come to heart and mind. If you'd like to join us on social media, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you will be able to engage with us just like on our website. However, since we can't decide when or when we won't be pulled down, For what we say and do, we do encourage you to make it a habit of joining us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. But uh, with all that in regard, we appreciate your prayers, your participation, and the sincerity of your Bible questions. Those are the only two metrics. We'll be setting aside the time for the next hour to deal with these issues, but note as well, we want to make sure God's the one actually speaking to hearts and minds, starting with our own. So why don't we start with a word of prayer and... uh, Hope that uh, mercy is the basis in which we do anything. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word, among your people, and in your spirit. We know that we aren't here apart from anything that's not going to end up glorifying you. So we ask that is what would ultimately be done. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of this process. Continue to cover Peter and I, knowing that we are sinners, but you are our Savior. I ask that everyone listening as well would come to you on that same basis, that we can come to you for wisdom and truth. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, to start off on the broadcast, uh, interesting goings on, not necessarily a prophecy update, but uh, Peter and I last Tuesday, Wednesday, for those listening on Reach Radio, uh, were uh, given the opportunity to address a bit on how to engage with those who are caught up in the propaganda surrounding gender theory. And while it certainly is uh, through, I guess, mass input, influencing a lot of hearts and minds of very impressionable people at younger and younger ages, um, the studies, peer-reviewed scholars, and all the other fancy terms used as a well, logical fallacy known as appealing to authority, are putting forward all these things. It uh, turns out they don't actually have that going for them. Uh, when it comes to being informed on these issues, we first and foremost want to make sure the Bible is what we're equipping you with. And that, of course, starts and ends with two things to clarify. First Corinthians chapter 5 notes that those who are in the world aren't held to the standards as those in the church. We make a distinction. But the second thing is noting that these 
aren't the sins that would condemn someone forever. The only sin that God can't forgive is refusing to be forgiven. So salvation is as much available to those who are caught up in this ideology as any other. With that being said, we also have a priority for the truth. Those who do not love the truth but embrace a lie will, of course, not hear it when it's spelled out for them. We, however, are of the hope that the majority of you listening do care for the truth and want to shed some light on something you're going to be hearing a lot more of to be equipped for both sides of this argument. So when it comes to those first two key details, that these people aren't uh, beyond saving, and that this issue is one that needs to be dealt with inside the church, the gospel is available for those on the outside, uh, how is this argued in uh, from a secular perspective and what would be a biblical response to the literal fudging of the data that's yeah. happening here? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll go through a little bit of this article. It's written by a guy named Jesse Single, who is, by the way, not a conservative, not a Christian, uh, definitely not anti-trans or anything like that. But he is addressing a article <clears throat> that was written a couple months ago, end of February, called Mental Health Outcomes in Transgender and Non-Binary Youths Receiving Gender-Affirming Care. And it was published by the JAMA Network and written by a number of PhD candidates uh, it, in Seattle. So base, the, basic, uh, the basic premise of this study, I think, is given best by one of the doctors who did the study, a guy named Collins, uh, this is how he words it. He said, the results were very dramatic. We had 56.7% baseline rate of depression and a 43.4% baseline rate of suicidality within the transgender youths that they were observing. So they did a study involving those who are a part of the transgender movement. That's the base. That's the, uh, uh, what's the term in the science? Control. Method, the control. <laughs> and they reviewed them based on emotional perception, but we'll look that aside for a moment mm -hmm. and say, based on this, we had almost 50% suicidality, which is true. Well, and 56% yeah. depression on the basis of what, what was the study done? Okay. So how the study was basically done and uh, let, let me finish up his quote and then I'll explain how the study was uh, accomplished and we'll take this in two parts. The first one is what if what this guy is saying is right? How should we as Christians address it? And then the second one is looking at it and saying, but is it right? Is it actually right? Because that's very important as well. As Sean said, the truth is valuable. It's very, very important. So he says that they came in with this baseline rate of depression, suicidality, which, by the way, if you look at any statistics for transgender people of any age range, that's the baseline. Uh, you have about 50%, a little over half of everyone who identifies as transgender is going to have uh, about half of them are going to have massive rates of depression, anxiety, problems like that. And then a little under half are going to have suicidality. That means that attempts on their life, not just I have thoughts of it, like actual attempts on their life, which are radical numbers, by the way. Uh, no other. I think I think the only other group that had rates of depression and suicidality at that uh, that level were actually Jews in the Holocaust. Right. Well, it so, was higher than that. Right. Uh, the 
only other group that matches that rate of suicide attempts are paranoid schizophrenics. Okay. Uh, people who endured slavery that were able to be peered at that, or reviewed rather, interviewed at that time, mm. didn't have this rate of suicide and depression. Uh, Holocaust survivors didn't. It was more the maltreatment from their community afterwards than anything else contributed mm. to that. But it's very interesting. It's noting common factors in the suicidality in the same rate of severe mental illness, but we can't talk about that. Yeah, and so as Christians, when you hear that, that should make your hearts go out to these people. Be like, wow, there's a lot of people who are suffering. This is a real issue that's going on in their minds. And it's translating into some really negative behaviors towards themselves and some really negative emotional side effects as well. So our hearts would go to, well, we want to help these people. We want to help them. And so this study was aimed at proving that gender-affirming care, which would be giving teenagers puberty blockers, right? So when their bodies are going through puberty, you give them particular hormones that disable the puberty from happening. So their body can't actually trans transition into the, the, the essential changes that happen with male and female at that pivotal point in their life. And then also going steps further, because some of these people in the study were 20, so at that point, puberty blockers are kind of a, a moot point <laughs> unless you are a very late bloomer. So at that point, gender-affirming care is no longer puberty blockers, but it's actual gender-affirming surgery. This would be mastectomies, you know, actually cutting off the breasts, um, actually removing of genitalia and replacing them with the opposite genitalia and putting in various hormones to make you more like the opposite uh, sex, whether it's, uh, I'm sorry, the the one that females have i'm sorry uh testosterone's for males and estrogen estrogen right yeah you're right so either giving uh, testosterone to people who are transitioning from female to male or estrogen for people transitioning from male to female that's what we're talking about when we say gender affirming care sounds really nice but that's actually what we're talking about so they study this group for 12 months which is not a long time to study a group for something like this this is very, very severe, life-altering type of things that are being done to them. A year just isn't that much time. But putting that aside, he said, this is what he claims, over that year, this is what they observed, uh, receipt of any form of gender-affirming care, either or the puberty blockers or the gender-affirming hormones, was associated with a 60% reduction in depression and 73% reduction in suicidality. So when you hear that, you're like, wow, do we as Christians have a moral or ethical responsibility to provide this type of care for someone, even if we have, uh, it goes against one of our ethical responsibilities, and that is that we are created in God's image, and he made them male and female in his image. He created them. This is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Even though we have that ethical standard before God, doesn't the ethical protection of life take precedent? And if Sinning in one area protects someone's sanity and actually provides them with a means of, of uh, becoming more well-rounded and more psychologically stable and would prevent them from committing suicide. Don't we as Christians have a moral responsibility to provide that for people? Say even they provide verses to support it where the table of the showbread was not permitted for anyone but the priest, but for the priority of saving David and his men's lives, provide them food. 
they were allowed to break one law because that's what God's real priority was at. And once again, the question largely centers around that assumption that is this, in fact, saving people's lives? Now, the study in of itself, let's just reject that. Let's just say this is all common knowledge. If that is, in fact, the case, we have to ask the question, is this the only alternative? Because much like in other situations, um, when I can speak from, from personal experience, there are ways that are provided that have shown in some cases and for some people to provide relief, but others it ends up causing more problems than it solves. For example, in noting the, it was 73%, what about the other uh, 27 that are still dealing with suicide and depression? I would still want to make sure I would reach out to them. I would want 100% rather than a modest, even a majority reduction. Now you say, but that's uh, hypothetical or not living in a perfect world. You need to go with the best you can get, and this is the best that we can get. Now, therein lies the issue. Is this, in fact, not only the best option, the uh, affirming and pursuit and the enabling, even government-mandated, mm-hmm. provided enabling, of gender reassignment surgery for the sake of the preservation of life? Well, is that, in fact, the case? Which is what has happened in Canada. Right. Right. So that has happened in Canada and in, I think, 20 states in America this has been again government mandated, and you get in big trouble if you don't go along with it. So, um, so it's increasing, and it's becoming a very big issue. So, uh, again, we have to take it in both instances. I do think that if, like Sean said, and this is a big if, if this was actually true. So let's start with just assuming that everything this guy is saying is absolutely true. The question that he doesn't address, as you stated, Sean, is: Is this the only option, though? Now, I could see a debate happening within a Christian community that would be valid if they were say, this is the only thing that we have seen that lowers the rate of suicidality within these people. It's the only thing. How would you save David's men from hunger? Well, the options are food or... They die. (laughs) Or food. (laughs) That's right. So the only option to solve this problem. If it was the only option to solve this problem or the best possible and it was proven... I would say that there could be a very strong ethical case from Christianity to say, yes, I think that we do have an ethical responsibility to preserve life. That is first and foremost, like you're mentioning over and over again with the the story of David and his soldiers being hungry. The the preservation of life sets precedent even over clearly spelled out law. That's right. Absolutely. So I could see that debate. And I could see uh, another valid debate from some Christians who would say, no, this is an affirmation of falsehood. God has created you male. That's the truth. And so we want to do everything we can to try to preach the truth in love, to explain it to you in the most loving possible way. But ultimately, we can't compromise on truth, even if it would be pragmatically beneficial to your mental health, right? Right. So the argument on that basis would be we care more about your state before God than even your stability before men, a willingness to embrace suffering in this life in order to accomplish a greater priority in the next. Now, of course, that's hard to have a conversation about to those in the outside of the church. But again, we clarified, this is talking to those in the inside. How do those who call themselves Christians deal with this issue? Those who don't need the gospel. Right. <laughs> that would be our first priority. But in this conversation, we're dealing with two controls <laughs> in yeah. our debate. That is, of course, that they are Christians and that they're struggling with gender dysphoria or uh, feeling a, uh, I guess, identity crisis. Right. They want to buy into this gender theory. This is where the debate would stand if this was true. If 
this was true. That's right. And so within the church, again, I could see a very spirited debate. I wouldn't, um, me personally, I think I would more gravitate towards the latter side because this would be, again, affirming something that is just not true. This isn't like David taking showbread, which was just for the priests. This is affirming a deception, a manipulation, a lie to someone over the course of their life. And that would have long-term effects on their ability to have kids, their ability to have a family, who they're going to be. It's going to really affect every aspect of this person's life. So I think the cost is too high, even for that type of benefit. But, but this is actually, if you're listening to this right now, like, whoa, this is a really complex ethical issue. It's actually not. The reason why is because everything that I just read is a lie, right? So this guy who wrote the article, he does a very good job. And like I said, he is not a proponent. uh, I'm I'm sorry, an opponent of gender affirming care. He is not someone who is against the transgender movement, but he points out and just demolishes this article. Uh, It's very lengthy. If you want to read it again, the guy's name is Jesse single. Uh, His name is spelled S I N G A L just wrote this article yesterday in his Substack. And it's very lengthy. April 5th, 2022. I'm sorry, April 6th. 6th, Yeah. Uh, And uh, the name of the article is Researchers Found, pretty lengthy title, by the way. Researchers Found Puberty Blockers and Hormones Didn't Improve Trans Kids' Mental Health at Their their Clinic. Then they published a study claiming the opposite. (laughs) Okay. That sounds like a problem. That's right. So essentially what he is able to show is the reason why they're, they're, they're fudging the numbers, they're manipulating the data to their benefit. But essentially all the study showed is that kids who received gender-affirming care, their depression and suicidality rates didn't change at all. But the kids who didn't receive any care, theirs went up, and they never explain why. Now, usually in a study, you have to give some sort of an explanation as to why did the results not get any better? Why did it stay the same? Why did these people get worse? They never provide any data to suggest why these things change. So he provides some uh, just getting some people to look at their studies. They're able to provide some thoughts on why the data is so skewed. But again, the data just doesn't show what these doctors are expressing. And again, there is legitimate political policy that is being instituted on the federal level right now based on this study. Not the opposition to it, not the response to it, not the truth behind it, the study this is responding to. Exactly, exactly. Because there have been states throughout the... uh, throughout America that are banning this type of gender affirming care. They're not saying like, Hey, you're actually not, you know, this isn't like a Christian thing where they're like, no, you are, you are a male. God created you as male. You need to live in that gender for the rest of your life. It's just, if you're under the age of 18, Hey, you can't get a tattoo because that would alter your body in a pretty massive way. So you probably shouldn't be able to take this drug, which we don't have any longitudinal data about to alter your body's chemistry and trajectory of your hormones and development. It's just not a good decision. So there's a lot of states saying no to this. And so the federal government is stepping in, citing this study saying, yes, we need to put our foots down. We need to allow this to move forward. So, uh, again, I encourage you guys to read the article on your own time. It's pretty lengthy, but he does a very good job debunking this study. So that being said, once we have all the data in and we realize, oh, this doesn't actually help, he actually demonstrates a far more nuanced perspective. And it's something that me and Sean talked about on Tuesday. And it's something that going this direction, the reason why the suicidality rates of transgender uh, youth, the reason why it's going up 
not down is not, as some people have suggested, well, the number of transgender people are going up. No, that's not what's going on. The reason why it's going up and not down is because we're not able to look at any other potential reasons for why this person might be suicidal. Is it possible that this person is experiencing suicidality, depression, and anxiety because they have genuine gender dysphoria? Yeah. But it's also possible that this person already had suicidal thoughts, depression, and anxiety, and someone told them the reason you have it is because you are in the wrong gender, and they believe them, right? And you also have guys like Walt Heyer, who we talked about extensively on Tuesday, where he had legitimately a lot of other mental and psychological issues. And this gender dysphoria was just one of them. Right? Right. So even if he and he talks about it after he transitions, it didn't really help that much. And he ended up transitioning back. So uh, that, that's problematic. Beyond that, there are people who grow out of it. They feel they have genuine gender dysphoria for years of their life, but then they grow out of it. And again, if you do this type of uh, long-term surgery or gender affirming care, it could really destroy or seriously damage the rest of your life. Uh, so th th because of those reasons as Christians, we have an ethical responsibility to oppose it, not only to people within the church, right, to lovingly say as best as we can in the most loving communicative way that we can do, this is not going to help you. This is not right. You need to look at other things. Maybe there's other nuances going here. Maybe you have a different mental disorder. Maybe there's something else occurring in your life. We want to help you. It's our responsibility as Christians to bring that up, to try to get people to look at themselves in that way. Yeah. How are things with your family? How are things in your personal relationships? Are there other factors, sort of input or entertainment decisions that are cultivating this sort of approach? And are these consequences of this worldview simply checking in on the bill? But this is also even more good news. Uh, if that doesn't seem like a conflict of what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes. What if they went through with the surgery already? Is it too late? No. Not at all? No, absolutely not. So if you've already gone through the surgery, if you've already taken the hormones and you've moved in a particular direction, it is never too late to go back. And you know what? There, there are different sides of it. You know, when I say that, don't believe that, hey, like there are some cases where some people don't have the finances right now to do the transitioning surgery. And they're like, well, can I not be a Christian unless I transition? No, you can be a Christian right now, right? You could have a relationship with God right now however you are, and acknowledge him the way that you are, right? Come to him exactly as you are and allow God to provide the means for you to transition back in the future, right? So, so be patient and allow that to happen, but it is never too late. There is no sin too drastic or too severe for somebody. But I think that some Christians can mistake this, and you and I talk about this often, where Christians can say like, oh, it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. The psyche doesn't exist. Uh, it's all a racket, you know, all these mental disorders. They're just not true. They're not real. You just need to pray. You need to do this. Understand that underneath these theological problems are most likely severe mental issues that need to be addressed separately, right? And that living proof <clears throat> can be. Exactly. Exactly. So if you guys have any more questions about that, we'd be happy to answer them. But otherwise... Let's get to the comments. Yeah, uh, well, good follow-up on this topic. Uh, Kim wants to know, uh, how do we tell the difference between someone who is possessed, someone who's mentally ill, and someone who's perhaps involved in fake deliverance ministries? Thank you for that prefix. That uh, just act either for attention or just say, get me out of this church. Are you happy now? Uh, mm -hmm. Since similar behaviors occur. 
Well, obviously there's going, well, false teachers, false teach. That, that's always going to be a constant. The only response to that is with the truth. But when it comes to actually providing a solution beyond just bad ideas, if someone's in a biological as opposed to a spiritual condition that results in similar behavior, and we acknowledge that, uh, your brain can do some really funky things when in a state of desperation and distress, even with no outside stimuli. Likewise, the demonic states that we're given record of, not only in Scripture, but are still seen today, do bear a lot of similarities. The quote-unquote supernatural phenomena is really just an outside interference on natural faculties, but it's driven by something other than the misfiring synapses of an abused brain. So when we want to know the difference, it's actually very easy, Kim. Uh, When it comes to dealing with the demonic, it is very, very straightforward. In the name of Jesus, we have been given authority over all principalities and powers of this world's darkness. So when you're given the confrontation or, I guess, opportunity to confront one of these creatures, uh, it's not something you want to seek out. Trust me, (laughs) the book of Acts notes the people went looking for trouble, found it, and not solutions. But the key detail in all of this is that every single time, without exception, the one and only authority that bore any authority over the demonic was our Lord. And whenever someone acted on behalf of him in his name and through his power, they simply said, in the name of Jesus, get out, be silent. If that doesn't work, well, then you just eliminated half of the option. It's either the way that Jesus demonstrated it towards us, or it's another factor than what Jesus demonstrated and was dealing with. It really is that A and B. The people who, as you stated, Kim, are trying to uh, involve apocryphal Jewish mysticism and rituals and all these other fun things into the mix are either, as you said, looking for attention or are cultivated with bad ideas. We need to make sure that we aren't given more attention to the devil in our prayers. Every single pursuit of Jesus should involve pursuit of Jesus, mm-hmm. and that includes in exorcisms. Once again, if you feel that someone might be just having a mental episode or in your experiences maybe coming off of some uh, anti-psychedelic drugs, uh, and noting the name of Jesus and right. just recognizing that you encounter legitimate demonic encounters. And again, speaking from experience, they will look at you like you just hit them with a brick. Yeah. It is that potent, it is that powerful. But note as well, those who are going through a biological phenomena, the name of Jesus is going to be just as significant as the name of Peter or the name of Sean. It's words right. producing air. There's no authority behind that because that's not the issue being combated. Now, of course they don't, uh, discourage you praying over people who are in times of distress, but note the difference between an exorcism and the need for counseling and therapy are literally that black and white. The solution for an exorcism is incredibly simple. The solutions and treatment for mental disorders are not. If you can eliminate the simple, then get to the complicated. If you resolve the simple, then it's already over. Right. That's our approach on that matter. Right. So in the, the book of James, James makes the point where someone would go up to uh, a homeless person and say, be warm and filled, you know, and then walk away, just kind of pray over them. And James is like, if you do not provide for their nest, their necessary, uh, nourishment, 
then you've provided them with nothing, essentially. So as Christians, we need to understand that, again, not every solution is spiritual. There are some physical uh, things happening, and Sean was referencing. I think your dad told me it was his favorite story that I've ever told him. Uh, but, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, regarding that. Yeah, so I, I, I was a part of an exorcism once, and I won't get into the details because it was uh, kind of funny, and I want to preserve identities here. Yeah. But um, so far, so be it to say, Sean already mentioned this person was coming off of a pretty incredible drug when I got there and they were, their body was not doing well. So when I got there, I prayed over them. I had some time with them, but I also made sure that they had some physical necessities. So I, I did treat, I was like, Hey, maybe there is a demon here. So I prayed and I asked God like, Hey, is there, is there a demon here? Please reveal it to me. And I, I prayed that it would go out if there was one and there was no response. She didn't have any response whatsoever. So I was like, doesn't seem like it. I was like, hey, okay. do you know Do you know Jesus? And she said, yeah, I know Jesus. He's helping me now. And I was like, okay, well, sounds, you know, sounds like, sounds like, you know, Jesus, you don't really need an exorcism. You, you need some water and some rest. So I, I tried to give that to her and I, I allowed her to get some rest and it helped her a lot. So uh, be very careful when you try to, again, diagnose everything as a spiritual issue. Uh, as Sean said, it doesn't hurt. You know, that's the easiest thing you can do is treat it as if it's a demon possession. You can just check it off the list. And once you move on from there, you can get to the more complicated ones, ones that may require more attention, uh, more of your time, more of your effort, and be willing to give that to somebody because they, they might need it for sure. And uh, I see a follow-up. And she says, uh, and some will teach that some demons need a little bit more work. Now, they usually reference the passage in Mark where Jesus comes down and the disciples are trying to cast out a demon of a boy, and it's not happening. And Jesus says this can only come out through prayer and fasting. What's going on there, Sean? Well, again, we'd want to go to the passage for further details, but note we aren't told what the disciples were or weren't doing. Allegedly, the disciples weren't doing the one thing that could solve the problem, and Jesus did. So do we work with what we aren't told, what the disciples didn't, quote-unquote, failed to do? Or do we go with the information we have, that every time a successful exorcism took place, all it took was the name of Jesus? What do prayer and fasting accomplish? It refocuses your attention back on God. It's not that, oh, you know, I ate food today. I guess I'm less effective in the spiritual realm. No, (laughs) what fasting is intended to do is not to remove, but replace times where you spend in your food to focus your attention on God instead. If you pray... Who are you focusing on? Not yourself, not your circumstances, not even the people around you. You're focusing on your communication and fellowship with God. The refocusing of their attention on Jesus was the issue because everything they did in that exorcism was the one thing, or rather everything they didn't do was the one thing that they should have been doing. And Jesus had to remind them of that. That's my exegesis at my interpretation of the passage. If, on the other hand, someone would read into this and say, oh, well, we uh, cross-reference this with the fact that Jesus in the gathering incident uh, had to identify the demon as legion and that it was on that basis that there was this prolonged uh, ritualistic chanting that Jesus performed, which isn't in the text, but trust me, I made it up. The... It ends up being a mess. You need to focus on the plain things, not the obscure. You need to make sure what's actually in the text supports your conclusion, not based off of what has to be true because I just feel so much about it. That, that would be my response. Yeah, no, no, good response. So, so yeah, I hope that, I hope that helps, Kim. Yeah. Any other questions we got? Plenty. Uh, here's a, or two questions, rather, good ones, too, from Mac, who wants to know how we would respond to the statement, 
I'm a good person, so why would God send me to hell for not acknowledging him? Uh, and then a follow-up on that as well is, if God put these desires in me, why would I suppress them if God made me this way? Both are making false assumptions that we need to first clarify from the biblical worldview. But let's start with the top down. When it comes to someone's need for salvation, do good people get into heaven or do forgiven people get into heaven? Uh, yeah, so it's forgiven people. Uh, the main issue about us entering into heaven, there's actually twofold. The first one, and this is actually, in my opinion, the most significant one. Heaven is where God reigns. It's where God rules. And it's not defined as simply being in a land or being in a particular dimension or era or something like that. Heaven is described as a wedding. This is not like we're just going to go to some ethereal place where there's clouds and all of our relatives and family and everyone's laughing, having a good time in a field. When you go to heaven, you go to heaven to be with God. You go to heaven to be in a relationship with him. That is what heaven is all about. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this is what heaven is all about. It is all about knowing God, being intimate with him, and growing closer. This is why, you know, Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist who is now dead, and who knows where he he's at. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. But at any rate, uh, Christopher Hitchens used to have this, this famous challenge to Christians. He would say, name one moral act that a Christian can do that an atheist can't. And most Christians would kind of draw a blank. They wouldn't be able to answer that question. But the answer to that question is really simple. What is the first commandment that God gives to the people of Israel? I am the Lord your God. I delivered you out of the nation of Egypt. You will have no other gods before me. This idea, this command that God was giving, the first and most important, Jesus clarifies this later on, and he actually elaborates on it and quotes from Deuteronomy, not from Exodus, that the Lord your God is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the most important commandment that we can keep. So in order to be a good person, if you're not relating to God, who is good, and you're not loving him, then you don't have a chance to end up in his kingdom. And beyond that, you don't want to end up in his kingdom. Does that sound good to you to be in a place where you're going to be in such an intimate relationship with somebody that it's literally described as being married to them forever? Right? Would you really want to spend an eternity wed to somebody that you can't even stand in the here and now and don't even want to give the time of day? The answer is probably not. So heaven is for people who want to be in relationship with God. That's what it's all about. That is the prime moral thing that you cannot do if you are an atheist as opposed to being a Christian. And it is the most important thing because that's what heaven is about. The second part, which is even more important in some ways, is that God is a perfect judge. And therefore, he must judge all sins perfectly. So when you say, I'm a good person, compared to what? You're a good person compared to what? Do you mean you're a perfect person? Do you mean that you do everything well? This is what Jesus says to the man, the young, rich young ruler in the gospel accounts where he comes to him and says, oh, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Notice right? why, not don't. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Jesus is clarifying his position as God, as being deific, and as being perfect in his behavior by saying, I am agathos. I am good. That's the Greek word that is being used there. Good in and out. And I don't make any mistakes. When Jesus is saying that, he's saying good compared to what? Yeah, you might be good compared to that guy. You know, you might be good compared to that girl. 
but are you good compared to God? Are you good compared to perfection? That's the question that we need to ask. And if the answer is no, then we need another solution other than fixing our moral behavior. So the whole point of Jesus going about teaching the Sermon on the Mount, living the perfect life that he did, it wasn't to give us an example that we have to live up to. It was to give us an example of what we could never be so that he could lay down that life and we can have the righteousness that he was owed and he can endure the punishment that we were owed. That's the whole point. So as Sean put it, the only people who are making it into heaven are forgiven people. That's why you have some people in the Bible that, hey, I'll be quite honest with you. There are some people who are making it to heaven in the Bible that a lot of people are better than, right? <laughs> when it, when it, good compared to who? Good compared to Saul, you know, good compared to Samson, good Lot. compared to Lot. You know, these are guys who are going to be in heaven. You know, Lot had sex with his own daughters. Samson was just a mess. You know, he did very little right. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you have these guys who are going to be in heaven. We know they're going to be in heaven, but they're not very good people. And by the way, the Jewish authors of these books didn't portray them as being good. It's not like we had to find like the real story written later on on the life of Lot. No, the guy, the people who are calling him righteous are the people who are talking about his evil behavior. And they're calling it out as evil behavior. They're saying, don't live like this guy because it's terrible. But he had one thing right. What was it? He knew the true and living God and he knew the basis on which he could have a relationship with him, faith. That's what Lot had going for him, and that's why we will see him in heaven. So it's very important to understand. It's very good to communicate to people. That's why I like how Ray Comfort, uh, in the way of the Master series, he would always try to challenge people on that. What do you mean good? And you would go through the Ten Commandments and kind of loosely adapt the Sermon on the Mount to show people maybe you're not as good as you think. You know, Maybe you're not as good as you think and help them kind of wrestle with that. So uh, the second question, though, that he asked, how would you answer that one? Well, in regards to why did God give me these desires if he doesn't want me to act on them? And of course, why would he want me to suppress them if he gave them to me? Once again, both of the ways you can phrase this are making two false assumptions. Just like the previous question misunderstood what it means to be in heaven and what it means to be good, this misunderstands what it means to be God and what it means to be given. <laughs> so if we, once again, space that out in light of the sentence and then plug it back in, you'll notice the calculator's having a seizure for a reason. The first statement there, God, and then gave me these desires. No, when it comes to the Bible's portrayal of our sinful desires, we can go to James chapter 4, I believe, for example, when, uh, let no one say when he sins that I have been tempted by God. In for James God, 1. In James yeah. 1, thank you. Uh, God does not tempt, nor is he tempted to do evil. These things are fundamentally a part of his, or aren't a part of his nature. That's what we mean by sin not God's nature. So if we ask the question or make the statement, God gave me these desires and then tells me to suppress them. Well, I don't think God tells you to suppress good things. There are ways in which he tells us to govern certain things, and we'll get to the gave aspect of that in a moment. But let's start with who we mean by God, what we mean by God. God is the greatest possible being, not in non-factors like, uh, I guess, cruelty. That's an absence of empathy. It's not its opposite. If, on the other hand, we were to say, well, what is goodness then? It is God's nature. Maximum empathy, maximum comfort, maximum joy, maximum fulfillment, maximum peace, maximum patience, maximum 
love. It's one of the prime aspects of his character. But noting this as well, if I say that something came from God that isn't apart from him, it's just about as coherent as me saying, just like in good people get into heaven, well, I'm content to be not like God the way I am. And I am less not like God than that person who is not like God. Once you understand that doesn't make sense in light of what it means to be good or bad, now what does it mean for there to be a God and for him to give you things? What we mean by God is that foundational nature of something that is good. If he identifies something as bad, it's because it's not him. And he doesn't give you something that isn't him, which then is what begs the question. What has he, quote unquote, given you that you now question why he is to suppress it? Is it like dangling a carrot on a stick? No, you're setting yourself up for failure because, and this was the other passage was noting in James, when anyone sins, he is ensnared by his own desires and enticed. When desire it gives forth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives forth to death. Now, death is that union with God. <laughs> Is the full production of the things that God, quote-unquote, gave you with him or apart from him? Well, unless we believe that God is literally setting us up to fail, that is an incoherent position. So what then does it mean by, or do we mean by God gave me something? What comes from him is him. What comes from us can either be from him or not. The question is, did what I desire come from him or not and i use his word to determine that now usually and the most common one in our world today is the desire for sexual intimacy and they say well why would god give me these desires to be attracted to this person or that person but suppress it until we're married or if god gave me this desire to be attracted to the same sex or this desire to be attracted to animals or this desire to be attracted to children why would he condemn it why would he repress it well here's the or suppress it i'll use your terms the point being made is just that. Did God give you the desire for that? Or did God give you the thing in and of itself that is now being twisted? And that's the difference. We don't say, and this is the first kind of Mr. B's red pen logic, the correction on the bottom of the tweet, that we don't say that every desire we have is bad. But we note that the way we desire to achieve those things is not God's nature, thus the definition of not good or bad for those who have their thesauruses ready. So when we're talking about this issue, understand the misunderstanding. When we say God, we're not saying someone who is cruel, mischievous, or sets us up to fail. It's the foundation, source, and center of everything good. The things he's given us are of him, therefore are good, but we aren't him. We are not good. We are bad. We are not God. So we have to ask the question, do I want to engage in these things God's way, the manufacturer's way, the designer's way, or do I want to do it my own way and see why he told me not to avoid these things, but to pursue them in the right way? Whether you're in a position where you're saying, you know, I don't like the way, or there could be a greater gratification, for lack of a better term. If I pursue things my own way as opposed to God's way, once again, that is hypothetical and there's plenty of evidence against it. But the second issue is, the Bible acknowledges there's pleasure in sin for a seven, but the end result of it is what? James point, death, separation from God. The less and less that you want God, the more and more you're put in the first category. The person who thinks, I'm content in my not-godness. And that's not what we want as Christians. 
But note as well, the person who doesn't want God is naturally going to think and talk this way because they don't know the goodness of God. We're still learning it. <laughs> and if we did know the fullness or the goodness of God in all his fullness, then we wouldn't be sinning. But here we are. Here I am, still a sinner. So the point being made is this. We don't say, oh, only good Christian boys and girls are the ones free from this uh, vice of sin. No, we all struggle. But the person who doesn't know God needs to understand our starting point, the Holy Spirit, that firsthand experience and relationship with God that knows he's good, that's learning and wants to actually trust him in the things that we once did because we had no other option apart from ourselves. The person who says... Why would God tell me to suppress these desires is making the same error that the first person made and saying, why would God let me be of anything other than me? Why does he want me to be like him? Our answer is because he's better than you and me. But if on the other hand, the person says, well, I can't trust that. I can't know that. What reason would I have to know that? And the honest answer is you don't. You couldn't because apart from God, we wouldn't know or care about the things of God. But because God has revealed himself in history, he calls, Zach chapter 2, all men to repent, to turn to him instead of themselves. So if I'm asked the question, well, why would God tell me not to do things the way that I want to? Because he wants what's best for you. He wants what's him for you. That's the simplest way to put it. But building on that point, we would have to say, well, what would be a better option than what you've already decided? They've honestly set their hearts on it. It's not going to make any difference. What they want is what they want and how they want it. But apart from this two-year-old logic, which we all succumb to, by the way, we need to take a step back and ask the question, what do those words actually mean? So again, I'm repeating this because it is just that simple but fundamental point. If I understand God properly, I'm not going to accuse him of setting me up to fail. And if I understand what God is by definition, what he gives to me will be properly made distinct from the ways I handle it. I mess it up. And there'll be more eloquent clarification on this in a moment, but the point being made is this. Just like with the first question, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of words. Make sure you understand something we all need to remind ourselves of every day, what it means to be God, who God is. But the second and even more important thing is to understand what he gives us himself, not ourselves. If he just wanted to glorify us and make us more like us, he could just leave us alone because we're going to do that naturally. But if he wants something for us, then it's not only because as an infinitely generous being, he wants what's better for us, but what better, C.S. Lewis's quote thing uh, made the statement, what better thing could he offer us than himself? God cannot give us a peace or satisfaction apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So the point being made is centered around that. If I say, well, good people uh, like me don't need Jesus. Yeah, people don't want Jesus naturally, but God wants Jesus because God knows how good he is. But if on the other hand, we'd say, no, I've, I know God personally. I know that compared to everything else I've come up with in my life, it's destroying me, but I want more of him, not me. But on the other hand, I'd say, well, why would God then give me these things? Well, did he give those things to you or are you taking what he's given you and reshaping it in your own image? This is what we need to clarify. Now, regarding the second point, uh, anything more to clarify? Uh, not really to clarify. It's just I, I want to point out a really fundamental flaw in the logic that's, that's very obvious to anyone who thinks about it for more than a couple seconds. 
So when someone is asking a lot, yeah, uh, when someone says like, well, why would God give me these desires if I'm not supposed to act on them? That philosophy is not going to have help you live, uh, lead a life that's going to last past 30. If you gave into every impulse that you had, every desire that you had, you would not, you would definitely not make it past the age of 30. And beyond that, you would not be able to satisfy yourself or to live a cohesive life either. Not only are a lot of your impulses destructive and would lead to your imminent death, but they also contradict one another. So Charles Spufford, who uh, is a Christian theologian, he once famously said, you will realize over time that your wants and desires do not harmonize. They don't coalesce. It is possible to want something and in the very same moment not want it. He says, you will realize that you are a creature that was designed more for farce and tragedy than for happy endings. So over time, if you're very young, like Sean said, you're not going to recognize this. But as you get older and you mature, you realize like, wow, it's possible for me to want very desperately to, let me give you an example, to want very desperately to drop out of school because I hate it. But at the other token, to not want to, to want to stay in school because I want to graduate and have better chances in the job market. I could want those things at the same time and for very different reasons. So it's not God is saying, God comes into your life and says, now you have to start suppressing things. Before I came into your life, you could do whatever you wanted. No, God comes into your life and tells you, these are the things that you ought to suppress. These are the things that you ought to act upon. And these are the things that you ought not to act upon. So in other words, he gives us direction from, as Sean put it, the designer gives you direction on the desires that ought to be uh, ingratiated for your sake and his glory and the thoughts and the desires that should be suppressed because they're going to harm you and they're going to bring you further away from God. So that's a very important component to Christianity. Uh, as C.S. Lewis also puts it, he says, as Christians, we're not claiming that God is the only way to have a happy or, or fulfilled life. We're saying that he's the best way to have a happy or fulfilled life. You can have good lives without God, but you cannot have the best possible life without God. And that's important. All right. Um, question real quick as far as, uh, I guess, staying on topic, <coughs> clarification from Nina. Are transgressions and sins two different things or the same thing? Uh, referencing Isaiah, sins and transgressions, he is cast into the sea. Um, depends on the context, Nina. Uh, sin just means to miss. In this moral context, it means the character of God. A transgression is a deliberate rebellion to know what you ought to have done and do the opposite anyway. Right. Uh, you can unintentionally miss and you can deliberately miss, but both are misses in that sense. If I say, oh, I sinned, and then someone says, well, you intended to do that, not necessarily. Yeah. But if someone intended to miss, then they also missed. If they rebelled against God willfully, they rebelled against God. But if someone sinned, they also rebelled against God, just not without necessarily the will, the conscious and uh, obstinance. So every transgression is a sin, but not all sin are transgressions. Yeah. <laughs> right? Simply put. But let yeah. us know if that helps you out, Nina. Uh, question from Kurt, who wants to know, why was the cost so high as to be the death penalty? To do any type of work on the Sabbath it seems harsh. It depends who you were talking to, Kurt. Uh, the audience of that commandment, had they uh, just been told one day, take a Saturday off? Or were they witness to miracles? Were they witness to daily provisions from God? Were they explained the severity and held accountable 
to the things that they had seen and heard, and therefore even the slightest deviation from those standards reflected a transgressive heart. To him who much is given, much is required, Kurt. That's why the penalties were so high in the Old Covenant, but not in the New. In the New Covenant, we're on the basis of trust and remembering what was done in history, and the accountability therein is just that. We either believe in Jesus or we don't. But in the Old Covenant, it was accountability on the basis of what they had seen and heard for themselves, Mm -hmm. at least in the uh, time of the Exodus. So when they were told, do not do work on Saturday, you're agreeing to those terms and the consequences thereof, literally with a mountain of fire, lightning, and smoke telling it to you to your face. If you were to then rebel after that, it reflects a heart that couldn't be capable of obeying anything else in any other circumstance. But noting this point as well, there are other things that we would say are rightfully capital offenses, uh, kidnapping and enslaving people, for example, but we aren't the metric of what's too harsh or what's too little, are we? No. Uh, so I watched a movie a number of years ago. It's not very good. I wouldn't recommend it. It's called Paycheck. You know, so if you after you listen, it's like that does sound interesting. It's not. It's not the premise is interesting, but the the execution is terrible. But in the movie, it's basically this guy who produces. Uh, he reverse engineers certain products for companies and corporations, and they erase his mind after he's done. And he's told like, hey, you can work on this thing for a year, and then we're going to give you this massive payout. You know, like a million dollars, and then you'll be you'll be set for life. And so he does it for a year. They wipe his memory. At the end of the year, when he goes and tries to get his money out of the bank, they're like, you, you forfeited all your funds, basically. You gave them all away. And instead, you just have these 12 items, basically. And he's trying to figure, he's like, why on earth would I ever forfeit that amount of money? And someone points out to him very rightly, they said, perhaps it's because these 12 items are more important than what you lost. And it's, it's like I said, the premise is much more, much better than the execution. But essentially, when we see a commandment like that in the Bible and it strikes us, possibly God is trying to point out something to us that we need to pay attention to, right? He's trying to get our attention. And do we ever get a explanation for why the Sabbath was so important? And the answer is, yes, we do. Uh, Read through Hebrews 3 and the first part of Hebrews 4, and you get a very good explanation as to why the Sabbath was so important and why God wanted to put it into the brains of his people. This is valuable. This is important. Pay attention to this. The Sabbath produced this idea that rest was just as important as work. And beyond that, it called to mind the idea that God was promising a rest, and the writer of Hebrews does a very good job of taking us through the Bible, taking us through the Old Testament, and showing us that God was not just pointing to the Sabbath, and not just the Sabbath day, the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, which are in the Old Testament. He's pointing out that there is some sort of a rest that was in the future for the people of Israel that they didn't understand yet. And by celebrating the Sabbath, they were anticipating this miracle, this thing that God was going to give them that would give them ultimate rest. Well, what was it? It was the Son. Jesus died for them, died for us, so that we can have a rest for our works. We no longer work to be in a relationship with God, which is what the Old Covenant was. It was a relationship with God predicated on works. We have a relationship with God predicated on rest, predicated on Jesus' finished work and our belief in that. So the people of Israel were supposed to have this like really laser-focused idea of, oh my gosh, rest is important, and God is going to provide us with a rest. 
He set up the law to anticipate Messiah. Did they get the message? Some of them did, and some of them still are. There are a lot of Jews out there right now who are coming to faith in their Messiah and recognizing the true rest that was promised within the Sabbath. Uh, Jews for Jesus is a pretty cool ministry that's uh, all over the place, and they do amazing work. One of the guys I was listening to who's a member of Jews for Jesus, he talks about his conversion. And it was because of the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, some Jews are so strict that they won't even flip their light switches. And so they actually pay someone called called Goyas to come in, Gentiles, to come in and flip their lights on and off for them on Sabbath day. And there was one night where his Goya forgot and left his light on in his room. And he was laying there at night. You know, it's two in the morning and the light's just blaring in his face. And he's like, this is ridiculous. Why would we do this? And he started pondering the Sabbath. Why is it important? Why is rest important? And if rest is so important, why is the law so difficult to adhere to? Why is it so burdensome? And that started opening up his heart to Messiah and the teachings of Christ. So Sabbath, it sounds weird to us, but it's weird because God is trying to hone us in. This is important. He's trying to point this out to his people. Very important. Also, read the book of Jeremiah and see why God exiles the people of Israel for 70 years specifically. It is all about the Sabbath. So yes, God harps on the Sabbath a lot, and there's a big reason why he does that. Yep. A question from Yari wants to know, what is Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, and should we as Christians read it? Um, Like anything else in history, Yari, you can read whatever you want. The question is as to why. For example here, I have a copy of the Quran. Now, you will never find a more anti-Christian piece of literature, second only to maybe the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society's New World Translation. Yet, you'd notice based off the tabs, I read this thing a lot, and I'm not all the worse off for it. Why? because I do it with the intention of combating the bad ideas within it. Uh, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians was a disciple of the Apostle John writing a letter to the Philippians. It's not scripture, no more than this is, but it certainly has a lot better material in it than that. (laughs) If you want to read it, you can. If you don't, then you're not missing out anything. If you were to instead read, say, for example, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, what we call Philippians. But just note the difference. It's not scripture, but it's still fun. That's what matters. All right, uh, music's coming up. We don't want to talk over it. We thank you all for your participation and talking and sending us questions. We will see you all again tomorrow. Till then, God bless you. Keep us in prayer regarding allergies. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.